This is Digital Health Today, episode 14. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall. On the last episode, we spoke to KP Yelpala of Access Mobile, and he pointed out the importance of his partners in delivering innovation to his clients in Africa. One of the companies he mentioned was Microsoft. While it certainly isn't known as a healthcare company, when it comes to installed base, there's arguably no technology company with a greater presence across the health continuum than Microsoft. Software pioneers Bill Gates and Paul Allen founded Microsoft in 1975, and the company has delivered powerhouse platforms that have revolutionized industries across a broad spectrum. They're a company on the move, and they are making an impact. Their high-profile acquisition of LinkedIn in June 2016 overshadows other important acquisitions and announcements that hold potential for a big impact on the health community. These include their 2011 acquisition of Skype and their 2015 announcement of the HoloLens, the first self-contained holographic computer. These technologies are now part of the Microsoft platform, which enables entirely new ways of interacting with others and the world around us. In fact, if you haven't seen how the HoloLens can be used in healthcare yet, jump over to the show notes on our website, digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 14, and take a look at what the developers at Case Western University are doing to use HoloLens in the holographic anatomy program. It's really amazing. We're going to talk to Microsoft about some of the innovation that they're driving and delivering around the world. But first, just a quick reminder to join our digital health community. Join thousands of innovators around the world and get access to the latest news, innovation, events, contests, and more. It's free to do. Just go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash join, punch in your email address, and you're ready to go. I look forward to seeing you there. My guest today is Neil Jordan. Neil is the worldwide general manager for the health industry for Microsoft. In his role, Neil acts as the chief strategist for the organization's health initiatives worldwide. He's responsible for defining and articulating the Microsoft vision for the future of healthcare, and importantly, how Microsoft's products, technologies, and partner solutions are working to make it a reality. Neil and I spoke about Microsoft's programs such as BizSpark and the Imagine Cup, and how they're helping innovators around the world to get access to leading technologies and services. We also spoke about the key pillars of Microsoft's health transformation strategy and the importance Microsoft is placing on creating exceptional experiences in all aspects of the user journey. Neil mentioned some excellent examples and companies that are making huge strides in healthcare innovation. And you can find links to all these resources in the episode show notes. Again, that's digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 14. Now, without further ado, let's tune into the conversation with Neil Jordan. Neil, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Looking forward to having the conversation. Neil, I I just gave the listeners a little bit of background into your role at Microsoft. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you actually do and the path that you took to get where you are today? Yeah, I'll tell you the path was not linear. So um, I'll start with that one. I started off, as you can tell from the accent, in the UK and did a degree, a couple of degrees actually at Cambridge University in biological and then medical anthropology. And my dad is a now retired pediatric cardiologist. And so I'd always kind of had a health bent to everything that I did. And I was a computer nerd as well. When I was kind of a teenager, I was into all the personal computer um, kind of revolution in the UK and was programming on ZX81s and even Dragon 32s and those kind of things. And you can tell how long ago it is because we used to call it programming, not coding. And then um, I joined actually uh, IBM and Lotus. IBM bought Lotus uh, when I was 
uh, living in England and actually was a professional singer, believe it or not, singing at Windsor Castle. Uh, but I, I got the opportunity to join a tech company then. Uh, and then when Microsoft hired me out of IBM, which is now 16 years ago, I was put pretty quickly into looking after our relationship with the National Health Service, uh, which is a big uh, government-run health service that looks across all of the UK. And about five years later, found myself over in the US uh, looking at our global business in health, and I've been doing that for the last 11 years. Fantastic. I always like to hear about people's personal journeys. I, w- I wouldn't have necessarily put uh, someone in your role as a professional singer at Windsor Castle, but that's a fascinating <laughs> insight into your... It, it's a strange combination. I, I still keep the singing up from time to time with Seattle, Seattle Opera here, but, but most of my time now is dedicated to seeing how we can create the kind of digital transformation that the health industry is looking for. Fantastic. And, and how do you like living in Redmond? I love it. I live actually in downtown Seattle in a neighborhood called Queen Anne. I love the, the Northwest feeling and vibe. And uh, I can certainly manage the Northwest weather because um, coming from England, it's not that bad. And, and uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoy life over here and have a, a wonderful American wife who I met over here. And we're expecting our first baby in December. So I, as you can imagine, I'm getting super geeky about all of the technology whenever I'm visiting any of the uh, any of the clinics. Absolutely. I'll send you some links to some of the technology I found as a parent myself. Uh, there's a lot of tools out there and it's hard to resist buying some of these things. And congratulations. I'm excited to hear your news. When is your baby due? December the 23rd. No, I was just saying I actually came across some fascinating technology just yesterday, um, a company called Clinic Cloud, um, who started off as a winner of the Imagine Cup, which is a Microsoft innovation event for kind of young inventors. And they've now commercialized their product. And this super smart digital thermometer and stethoscope for babies, which connects to your smartphone. Very, very nice kind of commoditized, easy to use technology. So it was exciting to see that. And I can't wait to get to use it. Great. We'll talk a little bit more about that Innovation Cup a little bit later in the program. So, you know, as I said to you when I, I met you, it was at the eHealth Week, I think, in, in Amsterdam a few weeks ago, or actually now probably a couple months ago. Everyone has uh, a familiarity with Microsoft products, and you guys are a cross-platform powerhouse in, in the software space. And you were one of the very early entrants into the connected health platforms with the Health Vault uh, solution that you offered. What other activities does Microsoft have underway that we may or may not be aware of? Yeah. So in the Health Vault, it's really interesting. I mean, as a global company and one that ultimately is a platform company rather than a specialist solution company. By that, I mean, we provide underlying platforms rather than trying to provide the electronic medical record systems, for example. It's an interesting discussion for us to work out, you know, what altitude we should work at. So at some level, yeah, you're right. You know, we're a we're a generalist, and I use that in, in the best sense of the word, a generalist software provider, which crosses many, many platforms. And you've seen us in the last two years really expand that, you know, from a very Windows-centric viewpoint to one that is much more about a mobile-first and cloud-first point of view that crosses all platforms and all devices. And then in health, what we say is, well, what are the underlying platforms that we can produce right now that are valuable and the partnerships that bring those platforms to life? And what are the conversations that we have? And so fundamentally, there are really four things that we're trying to do in this whole idea of digital transformation with with these underlying platforms. The first one is help customers engage their patients better. And that's all about how do we bend the cost curve in health? We all know that we have to create 
more focus on managing and preventing chronic diseases, which take up typically about 70 to 75% of healthcare budgets. The second one um, is around um, empowering and assisting with the efficiency of care teams themselves. We know that inside health, the, the delivery of health is becoming much more of a team game. And so how teams work together and collaborate together is incredibly important. The third one is using data to help optimize both clinical and operational effectiveness. Um, and I think as people realize that the electronic medical records are just the first step in the, the digital health transformation, really how we help them move from these systems of records like electronic medical records into systems of insight is the third, the third conversation. And then the final one is really about the kind of future and more advanced technologies that will help us transform the care continuum with technologies like genomics and software to assist with analysis and, and management of genomic data, so software to build virtual um, health and virtual care delivery. So think of, think of the ability to create these healthcare interactions online with both synchronous technology like video, but also asynchronous technologies. Um, and then finally, remote monitoring and using the Internet of Things to allow people to increase their interaction with patients and their patient monitoring in between visits. So those are kind of the, the four, four conversations that we try and enable with the underlying platforms. Tell me a little bit about your focus in terms of the combination of hardware and software, because we've seen uh, the acquisition of Nokia a few years ago. We saw the, the Microsoft Windows phone into the market and have a, a range of reviews or response from the market. I've spoken to many developers that absolutely love the software, love the interface. I've spoken to users who have had a similar uh, response. And I know actually my father just purchased a, a Surface tablet and is absolutely in love with it, takes it uh, with him on all his trips. And I've also spoken to people about all your touchscreen technology. So we're seeing a lot of this hardware that's much Microsoft branded, and we also know the, the strengths of the software platforms. Where does Microsoft sort of focus in terms of bringing those two pieces together? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it might sound like we're all over the place. I mean, uh, fundamentally, we're a, we're a software company at our core, right? Uh, and I think you've seen in the the way you mentioned it right at the beginning, the way that, way that we're working across multiple platforms um, hardware platforms, I mean, and indeed software platforms, you know, and different operating systems like Linux and, and uh, you know, different database systems. You know, the fact that we deployed SQL on Linux and have a new version of SQL that's available on Linux is, a, you know, a huge change for us. Fundamentally, the software has to be cross-platform, and that drives everything that, uh, everything that we do and, frankly, drives the mission statement that we have as a company to empower all individuals and organizations on the planet to achieve more. You can't do that if you say, hey, we're only going to do that on hardware that we build. However, um, we can light up a lot of those experiences directly with our own hardware. And if you look at the Surface example, I'm, I'm so glad that, that uh, I think it was, you said it's your dad is getting such a great experience out of it. Did I get that right? Was it your dad you said? Hey, that's correct, yes. Yeah, great. So if you look at the Surface, what's interesting there is, you know, if you look at healthcare as a, as a fundamentally mobile environment and the need for clinical users to have a clinical grade tablet, the interesting thing with Surface is, yes, we can unlock all those great touch experiences, lightweight, portable experiences that 
you know, have been around for a long time with the iPad and, and also with Android tablets. Um, but fundamentally, if they're going to look for a, a real clinical grade device that can run these highly complex environments like Epic, like Cerner and other electronic medical records, they want a device that doesn't just do touch, but can also have a keyboard connected to, to it that can have a pen that can write directly into these applications. And that because it has a fully grown kind of grown up and long standing operating system on it can run these complex applications in their original format. So when we go and visit doctors who are using surfaces, it's interesting that they're often using, you know, Cerner or Epic in its original kind of Windows environment, but in a hybrid way that where they can use the pen and use the keyboard as well. And so being able to light that up with, you know, current hardware is really important. And then you look at the next generation of hardware that's coming out with things like HoloLens and the ability to do augmented reality in three dimensions, you know, in this completely untethered way that HoloLens does. It allows us to do, you know, these incredible experiences like the work we're doing with Case Western, where they're using HoloLens to teach anatomy in an augmented reality way and have these kind of 3D Skype interactions with classmates wherever they are in the world. And those kind of things, you really have to not just generate the software, but as you're generating these new experiences, you've got to lead the way with the, the hardware platforms that are going to enable people to do it. And then hopefully that will catch on and other people in the ecosystem will build hardware um, around that already. And we've already seen that in the Surface world where we've seen a lot of great devices which look very similar to the Surface device coming out from people like Lenovo and HP and others, um, where we've kind of really created a whole new category of two-in-one devices. And, and dare I say it, you know, with the greatest respect for Apple, with the latest versions of their tablets, which, yeah, also have a keyboard and also have a pen on them. So, and so I think that's where hardware comes in. It can lead the, the, the imagination for what we're trying to, the experiences we're trying to deliver with the software. I didn't count the number of times you've mentioned it, but certainly the word experiences came up several times in your description there. And actually, that's one of the things that my father loved about his experience buying the Surface. And I know that's from a retail perspective, but he you know, went to the store locally and spoke with the people there who were very much experts in the product. And they really helped him transition from his laptop that he was using previously to the Surface and teach him the new software and really help with that whole facility. And that's obviously as I said, on the retail consumer side, but you're speaking about it from the healthcare side and, and certainly creating that patient experience, that user experience is something that uh, fortunately is becoming much more prevalent in discussions in health technology around the world. I was excited by you bringing that up. I mean, it has to, at the end of the day, all the promises for systemic benefit of these systems, right? You know, saying, hey, we're going to create wonderful digital transformation they're going to fall completely flat if we don't create an amazing user experience that captures the clinical user right at the time when they you know ideally you know bring the device out of the box or use it for the first time i could wax lyrical about how amazing the underlying software and technologies for machine learning and health but you know some of the simplest things like the fact that windows supports this um, you know, high fidelity visual facial logon to devices so that you can have an, in, an incredibly secure logon to your machine simply by sticking your face in front of the camera on a Surface Ford machine means that that whole you know, unpleasant situation that most doctors hate of usernames and passwords can just be thrown out and, and still 
allowing for a completely secure environment, but all they use to log in is their face. And we know that, you know, we've, we've tried these things with twins. You put twins in front of it and the system is clever enough that you can't have identical twins logging into the same machine. So just, you know, high fidelity log on, but done in an incredibly easy, easy to use way. Wow. And security is something that comes up in, you know, every conversation. Sometimes it's used as a barrier, I feel, to resist innovation. It's a very plausible concern and one that we all need to share and prioritize. But it, it feels like sometimes the security conversation undermines the the progress that we can make with technology. Do you feel the same? I would say that comment has been true. And I think it's right that from a security and availability reliability perspective we have a relatively conservative buying mentality in our customers that you know that's absolutely right these systems are are extremely important both from a privacy perspective and from a you know just running the underlying systems and um, i think what's changing now particularly with the increase in cyber attacks on hospitals is people you know have changed the conversation from a year ago where it was all, you know, if we look at cloud computing and health, for example, the conversation was, wow, you know, can I use the cloud in health? I'm a regulated industry. Is it going to be secure enough? Is it going to be private enough? To a situation now where if you actually look at where the, the, the ransomware attacks are coming and where the breaches in HIPAA are coming from, now the question is, can I actually be as secure as I need to be or create the level of privacy that I need without using cloud and modern technologies? Um, so, for example, if you look at the – I'll go back to Windows to start with. If you look at you know, the upgrade the Department of, of Defense is doing, so we'll go to a, you know, a, another industry here, but one that has similar – uh, if not greater requirements around security and privacy. You know, the reason why they are upgrading their 4 million desktops in the next couple of years, I think it is, to Windows 10, yes, there's nice functionality there, but fundamentally it's because of the extra security that's coming in with, with modern operating systems. And then if you look at the cloud, you know, how can you really secure all of these different devices, including you know, the shadow IT devices that come in through docs and nurses bringing their own devices into work without using cloud technologies and some of the abilities to get into some specific functions here, things like ATP, which stands for Advanced Threat Protection, which is some technology that we bring across multiple platforms, or the security technologies that we bring in through the cloud through a thing called EMS, the Enterprise Mobility Suite, which is cross-platform. So, so again, the conversation really has moved from the cloud being a threat to privacy and security to being, well, now that we've got all the right ticks in the regulation boxes for HIPAA and EU model clauses, well, how does the cloud actually enable us to be more secure and more private? And I've really seen that, that conversation flip on its head in the last six months or so. Yes, I agree. And as I said, it's something that we all have to be aware of, but it shouldn't be the primary barrier. There's solutions that can be put in place to address these issues. And there's regulations that can be drafted in a way that, that make them workable in a functional standpoint. And, you know, in the time that I've spent in hospitals over the past two decades, where you see just piles and piles of patient records just sitting there within arm's reach, you know, you, you don't have that sort of access when it's sitting in the, in the cloud. Even more so than that, you know, it, it's good that you bring up that point. But, you know, the fact that you can walk into some hospitals, not all of them, and, you know, because of that password issue that we talked about earlier, 
you know, the way they're getting around it is there's that little yellow sticky on the back of the monitor that says username, nurse, password, password. And the reality is, again, it, it's, it's modern technologies like facial recognition, like advanced threat protection and machine learning that mean we can really outlaw that kind of that kind of. I guess, corner cutting that goes on so that you can still create a great experience, but have a very, very high level of security and privacy. Yeah, it's something I've said for years, which is, you know, technology should really adapt to the way that we work. It shouldn't force us to adapt the way we work to accommodate the technology. You just gave a great example there with the the username and password. When people approach a computer, they want to be able to access it and log on and then have the system be intelligent to know when they've logged off or when they no longer need to have access to that program or that information. So uh, it sounds like you're baking that sort of solution in to your hardware and software, which I think is fantastic. I recently spoke to the founder of a company called Access Mobile. As a matter of fact, his episode just aired just before yours did. And he spoke about his partnership with Microsoft. Uh, he's developing a mobile solution for three countries in Africa. It's a Denver-based uh, entrepreneur. KP is his name. And he spoke very highly of his working with Microsoft and the For Africa initiative that has helped him so much and, and that has really poured a lot of investment into developers, developing developers and programmers, coders in the African continent. Are you familiar with that program or can you tell us anything about other programs that might be available around the world that Microsoft is investing in infrastructure and capabilities in uh, other countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll start by saying I think it is a responsibility of an organization like Microsoft to be driving innovation. And by that, I don't just mean our own innovation. I think one of the things that I love about the company is that we're driving and trying to develop local innovation um, in every country around the world. I'll hone in on for Africa, uh, you know, just for a minute, and I'll talk about another example as well. But if you look about for Africa, you know, as a, as a project, it's a very broad leadership project that says, hey, if we're going to drive digital transformation, we also need to ensure that we're not creating a digital divide. We have to ensure that part of our responsibility and our leadership is that you know there are there are digital dividends to be delivered locally in the economy by by generating access to digital technologies and generating uh, innovation in country in situ. And for Africa is a great example of that, where we're we're really putting a lot of time, effort, and money into generating. Um, the kind of startups and the kind of innovation that, that you you mentioned. You know, another great example of the, of the project in For Africa is uh, using TV white space um, to provide internet access in some very rural locations that today simply are not covered. So we have to be very focused at creating innovation at a local level. Uh, in the case of For Africa, at a continental level, uh, we also have programs. Uh, where we are working globally to create innovation. I'll, I'll just give you two examples of that. One is a project called BizSpark, where we're offering access to um, startup technology and access to cloud-based technology like Azure. <clears throat> and in, in fact, there's a specific project called Public Cloud for Public Good, where if you're doing programs around medical innovation and genomics, you can actually get free access in some cases, you know, if you if you put your project forward to Microsoft's cloud. And then we have this amazing project called the Imagine Cup, which is, is looking at younger innovators uh, and creates just some great, great winners. In fact, the, the winner this year overall was an incredible organization 
out of Central and Eastern Europe that had created um, a system for uh, using uh, cloud ML and machine learning and phone technology for helping people understand their posture and their spine position and what effect that would have on their health um, going forward. So, so kind of great innovation there. And then my favorite story around all of this is one where we are trying to help spread innovation. So we recently announced on the Microsoft corporate blog some work that we'd done with Children's of Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, where they'd done an amazing piece of technology to help kids who were growing up with, um, were born with congenital heart disease, in this particular case with a, a specific ailment called uh, hyperplastic left heart syndrome, where there's a very complex set of surgeries um, over two years. And in between the second and third surgery, and the children are sent home with their parents, but are still at relatively high risk. And in fact, I think they have a more they you know, typically have a mortality rate of around about 25% because of complications arising from the surgeries. And they, under their own incredible kind of innovation, um, had created a wonderful system called Champ, which uses a, an LTE, so you know, a, a phone-connected Surface 3 device, has a simple Windows 10 application whereby the parents can, at, um, at the same time every day, give information about their child's um, a specific um, physiological condition, uh, even take a video of the baby in the same position at the same time and upload that in real time to the nurses and the doctors and they can uh, look at that <clears throat> and intervene much, much faster with any issues that might be coming up. Now, the great story about this not only is, is the fact that it's you know reduced mortality rates massively, um, but that we're helping them take that technology and then make it available to other children's hospitals, both in the US and more broadly. And so now Seattle Children's Hospital um, is using that over here um, to manage children with exactly the same uh, condition. And so you know, as an organization, I, it really you know, literally warms my heart with you know, the ability to, um, to help organizations like that take their innovation and, and spread it more broadly, particularly with my dad having been a pediatric cardiologist. You can imagine how, how personally linked I feel with that story. Absolutely. I can't imagine. You mentioned a few programs. So BizSpark is one. And Imagine Cup. I saw that you mentioned that Imagine Cup, the winners for 2016 have already been announced. I was just looking at the website. So we'll include links to both those programs on the website as well as the public cloud for public good. That was, is that a part of the BizSpark program? That's actually a broader, a broader program than okay. BizSpark. So I think BizSpark is the one that's ready for startups. Public cloud for public good is for anyone who's looking at using the cloud technology for a number of uh, of um, what I would broadly call humanitarian uses that are aligned to the strategic development goals of the United Nations. And we announced that, I think, at Davos last year. And then the Imagine Cup is really for for college-based students and school-based students who, who want to come up and, and, and bring new ideas to the table. And the global champion, as you mentioned, for 2016 was a Romanian company that, uh, am I saying this correctly, is it Enty, E-N-T-Y? Yep. And yeah, you got it right. That's right. And, and uh, I was just looking at them, as you mentioned it, and uh, it's a wearable device. And that's actually something I hadn't mentioned earlier when I talked about the various platforms that Microsoft is operating on and developing, because obviously you have the Microsoft Band as well, which I know several startups are developing technologies based on on that wearable piece. 
I also saw even on my iPhone that there's a, a Microsoft Health application. So there's there's more and more that's coming out uh, to weave together this very rich uh, ecosystem for Microsoft and to provide, as you said, a platform, a foundation that people can work off of to create the interconnectivity across all these different devices. I think it's very exciting, exciting time for, for Microsoft and exciting time for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And the wearables revolution is absolutely at its early stages. Uh, but there are some great devices out of, out there. We have one. There are a lot of other great devices. And I think a lot of our, again, our focus here, similar to the previous conversation we we're having about hardware, is fundamentally how underneath it can we create a set of platforms or, uh, that, that connect all of these different devices and help people to get insights out of them. If you look at most of the wearables today, particularly in the fitness and wellness space, yeah, the reason why they end up back in the drawer, you know, in the, in the top drawer of shame, you know, within six to 12 months is because they're not actually creating insightful behavioral changes. You know, I don't need to wear a device to know how many steps I'm going to take today by looking at my calendar. So the really interesting thing is, can you preemptively, you know, cross over these different platforms, the wearable platform, perhaps your productivity platform, if you're using Office, uh, if you give it permission to look at what your meetings look like, um, understanding data that's coming in from other sources, other wearables, and perhaps your um, health fault account, um, and then say, hey, you need to be more conscious that on a day like today where you've got a review with your boss or where you're recording a podcast, um, I noticed that you didn't sleep so well last night. So perhaps you should go out uh, and take a walk for 15 minutes before you have that meeting or do a meditation. And it's really when you combine the software and the hardware and fundamentally the software across lots of platforms that will start creating more insight rather than just saying, hey, you've only taken 3,000 steps so far today. It, it's really going to be a combination of all of those platforms that's, that's going to provide uh, value, into, I think, at a personal level and at a systemic level. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, going back to my father as an example with the Surface, when you can get him wearing a wearable, I'll be absolutely over the moon. <laughs> That's something that I, I continue to struggle <laughs> with. He, he's not adopted that technology yet. Going back early in the conversation, Neil, you mentioned that there were four key areas. I think you called them pillars that you have in place. Yeah. Um, so they were engage your patients, empower your care teams, optimize your clinical and operational effectiveness and transform the care continuum continuum for your organization. So those four things, is that basically your value proposition? Is, is that, uh, does that inform your approach to projects with working with clients? Yeah, it, it does both of those. And, you know, we've talked a little about engaging with patients. I think we've talked a little bit about kind of transforming the care continuum with things like wearable devices and IoT. The one we didn't talk much about was empowering care teams. And it's just fascinating here. I think that you know, we're using Skype for business right now to record this. But think about the use of Skype for business, which is you know, HIPAA compliant, so compliant with all the regulations that we need to provide virtual care consultations. And increasingly, the system is paying for these kind of consultations, i.e. as a doctor or a nurse, you can get reimbursed for an interaction which doesn't have to be face-to-face. -face. So think about, you know, given the high fidelity of, of these systems now and the compliance whereby they can become both HIPAA compliant but also part of the medical record, 
you could have the interaction in a much more convenient and fast way by enabling not all of the interactions, let's be clear, but a number of the interactions to be done through a HIPAA compliant video conference. And we actually showed and have been showing integration directly into the medical record. So for example, Cambio in Sweden, which is the the leading hospital information system in Sweden, we've integrated Skype for Business directly into their electronic medical record so that the doctor has the option from inside of the calendar in that record to actually create a Skype for Business video consultation with their client, with their patient, if you will, and then have that consultation stored back in the record. And this is really just going to create a, a much higher level of efficiency and effectiveness. And also, frankly, allow the patient to go back afterwards and, and say, what was it that the doctor said? You know, I remember them talking about something about what I should do as part of my rehabilitation, but I don't remember the whole thing because it was it just went by in a flash. So just think about the extra kind of empowerment that that provides at a care team level and with collaboration and with virtual care. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Video, I've been involved with video for over a decade in terms of doing telemedicine and telementoring and collaboration around uh, patient's care. And to be able to simplify that, I think back of the systems we used just even 10 or 15 years ago, the the cost and the infrastructure that was required, and frankly, some of the complications in making the connections and performing the the, the calls, the video calls, and the infrastructure that was required, it, it was uh, really prohibitive and difficult and fairly clunky. And now, as you said, we're using Skype on this call. I have talked to hospitals that are looking at and, and deploying technologies. I've spoken actually to another hospital in Sweden. I, I can't recall the name of it just uh, off the top of my head, but they're using video consultations for burn units internally so that they can move patients off the, the burn unit and into the main ward for the hospital and then integrating that staff in their internal meetings each morning using video conferencing within the walls of the facility. So it's not necessarily just across town or uh, across countries or geographies. It's it's sometimes just within the same uh, building to be able to share that information conveniently using video and, and telepresence is very powerful, I believe. That's right. And like you said, the experience has to be great and the platforms have to be integrated and commoditized. And as you mentioned, telemedicine isn't just doctor to patient. There are great examples where you can have the care team themselves using video and telepresence to create a much more effective way of working together. There's a lovely story from Brighton and Sussex um, NHS Trust in, in England where they're using Skype for Business for high-fidelity interactions between the, and their clinical staff for stroke rehabilitation. So you think about a specialist stroke consultant being able to have a consultation with a patient with another medical provider in the room, but someone who isn't necessarily the specialist, but effectively scale their expertise that much further by using telepresence, telemedicine. And that's why we use this term virtual care, because we think, you know, virtual care is is an embracing term, which is a bit broader than just telemedicine and talks about not just the the clinical interaction, but also the logistical interaction so that a, you know, a patient could interact you know, after the interaction and see a recording of that interaction or could um, have a chat directly or an interaction directly with somebody who is scheduling their next appointment, for example. So right. just trying to broaden the idea of, of, of telemedicine, which has been around for many years. Yes, yes, it has. So those four pillars are listed on the digital, what is it called? It's the healthdigitaltransformation.com website. Yeah, if anybody who's listening wants to go to www 
health digital transformation written as all one word healthdigitaltransformation.com they can get a better idea of all of those conversations yeah, absolutely. I, I'm on the website now. I've taken a look on a couple of the pillars, uh, specifically the telepresence one and seeing some of the uh, care coordination that can take place there and uh, include the link in the show notes so people can easily access that. Um, Neil, we're coming up to the end of our time together. I have a few questions that I'd like to ask you in a lightning round fashion. Can we do that? Of course. Fantastic. Neil, can you tell me the best advice that you'd like to give to innovators and early stage businesses in the healthcare space? Two things. One, Focus on the end user experience. If you don't get that right, you'll never get adoption. Number two, think about the business model for scale. Health is an incredibly complex but a highly scaled business. And lots of innovators get up to their 10th and 20th customers, but they've never thought about the repeatability of their solution to get to 100 or 10,000 customers. What's your favorite quote or a saying that motivates you? Oh, that's going to get me. What's my favorite <laughs> quote that... What's my favorite quote that motivates me? Or, or a saying me? that motivates you. Yeah, just something uh, something you'll pass along to as fatherly advice uh, in a few years' time. <laughs> um, this is a terrible pun, but I, I, um, I heard somebody say once, um, if you're going to work in healthcare IT, you've got to have patience. Um, it's a terrible <laughs> pun on the word patience, but um, I think you know, you've got to have the, the ability to grind through these things, be convicted of what you're doing, uh, and work through to a, to a great final outcome. Is there a book that you'd recommend to the listeners? And uh, if so, why? I love Carol Dweck's book called Mindset. It's all about having a curious and open mindset to problem solving and to life in general. And it's had a huge impact on me personally, and it's having a great impact on the culture at Microsoft at the moment. So it's just called Mindset, and it's by Carol Dweck. Excellent. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. And is there a technology tool or app that you highly recommend and why? The tool is the cloud. <laughs> it's as broad as that. Healthcare needs cloud technology. Uh, we'll never be able to create the breadth of applications, the commoditization of applications, or the deep, deep learning and machine and analytics that are going to be required if we don't get the whole market globally using cloud. It's the, it's going to unlock a whole new generation of applications. Neil, in appreciation of your participation on this podcast, we're going to make a contribution to a charity of your choice. Is there a particular charity that you support? And can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Well, that's just wonderful. Thank you so much. I would love to have you um, donate to the folks at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. They are specifically having a fund to enable them to bring this amazing technology champ that I mentioned earlier and make it sustainable so they can bring it to other hospitals around the globe. And I, I would love to see any and all support of that. Terrific. We'll do that. And I'll make sure I include a link to that charity as well in the show notes. Neil, how can listeners keep in touch with you or follow what's happening at Microsoft in the health market? What are some of the, is there a Twitter feed, a website that they can go to, to to keep in touch? Yeah, absolutely. The best way to keep on top of everything we're doing is to follow us on Twitter. And it's easy to do that. We are just at health underscore IT. Couldn't be easier, right? At health underscore IT. And then keep going back to healthdigitaltransformation.com. We're going to keep updating that and you'll, you'll hear more about our stories. Fantastic. Neil, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciated the conversation. Well, there you have it. Lots of great content and information and you can find all the links and details in the show notes at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 14. If you found this podcast helpful, why not share it with someone you know? Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we speak to Kate Ryder, the founder of Maven Clinic, which is a telemedicine platform that's focused on women's health. 
We also welcome Harry Rowland of Inatronics, a company combining implantable sensors with digital health experiences. And Luke Curvin and Travis Schneider, the founders of Patient Pop, who are working to improve digital experiences and doctors' practices. We have many other guests in store, so hit subscribe on your podcast app to be sure to get all these episodes instantly as they go live. And I'd love it if you'd drop me a line to let me know what you'd like to hear next. Email me at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in. That's it for me today. As always, and until next time, keep on innovating.